welcome to the World Expose podcast, where we delve into the past to better understand our global society through conversations with leading professors of history, political writers, international journalists, and more. Enjoy. It is a great pleasure to be joined by Timothy Garden-Ash, Professor of European Studies at Oxford University and a Senior Fellow at Stanford University. He is the author of Free Speech, 10 Principles for a Connected World. He is a political writer and columnist for The Guardian and a contributor to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and his articles are translated and included in newspapers all over the world. Professor Garden-Ash, thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. Pleasure to be with you. So to start off, could you talk to us about 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of communism in Eastern Europe, and what you call the best year in European history? I do indeed, and I challenge your listeners to name a better one. I don't think we've had one before or since, uh, certainly not this year. So I had been uh, traveling behind the Iron Curtain in countries like Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, writing about the dissidency opposition movements for more than a decade. And the first thing to understand is that when I started in the mid to late 1970s, the division of Europe seemed like a fact of physical geography. It seemed a permanent feature of the political landscape. There was always going to be East and West, and the whole structure of world politics was going to be the Cold War with these two huge blocks meeting in Berlin. and. What happened in 1989, even though it had precedence in Poland and the opposition movements, was so magical, so extraordinary, because it happened so fast and so peacefully. A nuclear-armed former totalitarian empire just softly and suddenly vanished away in less than a year. And it was as if the Alps were just crumbling before our eyes. It was absolutely magical. And I wrote a book about that, which has just been reissued, called The Magic Lantern, which was the name of the theater where Václav Havel led the Velvet Revolution in Prague. And it really was a, just an absolutely magical moment, which opened the door, I would say, to a new chapter, not just of European history, but of world history. Post-45, we had the post-war world, now we're in the post-wall world. You said prior to 1989, it was almost impossible to predict what you call almost the Alps descending through Central and Eastern Europe and a reunification of Europe. In hindsight, could you sort of see where it was going and then eventually there would be a reunification of Europe or was it really impossible to envision? So if you go back to the 70s, it was very hard to imagine. Maybe one day, don't know when. After Solidarność, after the Solidarity Movement in Poland, and particularly after Gorbachev came to power, one could see that this was an empire in decay, the Soviet empire, that something major was changing. And I actually wrote an essay in 1988, which is called The Empire in Decay, The Soviet Empire in Decay. So we could see the direction of travel, but what nobody could foresee was just how quickly and above all how peacefully it was going. When people think about 1989, everybody knows about the Berlin Wall being brought down, but not everybody would know about all the revolutions that went on in Eastern Europe to bring an end to a divided Europe. Could you maybe just elaborate a bit on those revolutions and the role they played? 
Absolutely. I think that's really interesting. So, you know, people used to talk in the Cold War about a domino effect, and that was how one country after another was going to fall to communism. You know, Vietnam, then Cambodia, and the dominoes would fall. That was a sort of nightmare of the West. And this was a reverse domino effect as country after country flipped from communism towards democracy, starting with Hungary and Poland. Poland, as I said, had the Solidarity, had the Polish Pope. Hungary, which had reform communism, both of those had essentially negotiated transitions in the first half of 1989. Interestingly, the crucial moment was the 4th of June 1989, which was the day of the first semi-free election in Poland for 40 years actually in the whole Soviet bloc for 40 years. And the Solidarity Movement, the anti-communist opposition, got the seat they could win, bar one. And soon we had a non-communist prime minister. It's worth noting that the very same day, the 4th of June, was the massacre on Tiananmen Square in China. So it was the moment, the very day, the 4th of June 1989, when China and the European communist world parted company. China went down a more repressive route that gave you a country still ruled by the Communist Party today. And Europe started on down a route that ended with the end of communism, not just in Central and Eastern Europe, but also in the Soviet Union. And then, so you had Hungary, you had Poland, and then crucially, East Germany, where the main manifestation of discontent had been people trying to flee, trying to escape turned in the autumn with crowds chanting, I'll never forget, we're not leaving, we're staying here, we want change here. And the kind of velvet revolution, where East Germany was called the revolution of the candles, a quiet revolution, ended on the 9th of November 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, which is the one thing everybody in the world remembers to this day. It was the symbol of the change. And then Czechoslovakia and Romania and Bulgaria actually followed in the rest of the year. So that by the end of the year, the old communist regimes in the whole of what had been the Soviet bloc had gone. You mentioned that the joke of the time was, we know that you can turn an aquarium into fish soup. That's what totalitarianism did. Can we turn fish soup back into an aquarium is the question. You went on then to mention that you would never have envisioned how well Eastern Europe adopted liberal democracy and opened up and became to embody EU values. So could you maybe talk to us about that development post-1989? So I actually have a, a long chapter in the new edition of The Magic Lantern. What I did last year was to go back to all these countries, uh, talk to the people I knew so well then, but also the younger generation in these countries, many of them who hadn't been born in 1989, and um, try and do a kind of balance sheet of the changes. That old joke about, you know, the aquarium and the fish soup, because communism had destroyed so much, it had destroyed private property, the market economy, independent judiciary, obviously all the political institutions of democracy, civil society, that was a fish soup. We thought it was going to be unbelievably difficult to make the transition, and it succeeded better than we had expected over the next 10 years, partly, and this will be familiar to lots of your listeners, because it was bound up with what was called the return to Europe. So as in Spain and Portugal and Greece, as to some extent, I guess, in Ireland too, the feeling was that the modernization and the transformation into a modern liberal democracy 
went hand in hand with joining the European Union. And most of these countries joined the EU in 2004. So you had this unbelievably successful first 15 years in which they transformed into democracies and market economies, joined NATO, joined the EU. And now we have the backlash. After the liberal revolution, you have the anti-liberal counter-revolution, partly because there were a lot of losers from the transition, a lot of people who were very unhappy about the transition, including the workers in Poland who had started the whole thing in the Solidarity Revolution in 1980-81, which was something very unusual in history, a genuinely working-class revolution led by the workers. And a lot of people got left by the wayside. There was a lot of new inequality. There was a lot of alienation and disorientation. And that's now coming back to bite us in the backside. In your recent article in The Guardian, you stated that the EU is no longer a community of democracies, with Hungary now being a proper dictatorship and Poland following the same course, not to mention the growing populist and nationalist movements across Europe. You also said that the northern EU nations do not show the necessary degree of solidarity with the battered economies of southern Europe and left unaddressed head-on, we could experience the gradual weakening and disintegration of the EU over the course of this decade. Do you see the COVID-19 pandemic and the post-pandemic depression bringing more solidarity in Europe, or will this accelerate the growing division we're already seeing? So that is the trillion euro question. What we have, we have a situation where over the last 10 years, you've had a series of disintegrative tendencies in the EU with new splits opening up. So Putin's Russia taking a chunk out of Ukraine, annexing by violence the territory of another country, is a great bite in the East. Brexit is, of course, a huge blow in the Northwest, a major member state, even if a, an awkward customer, but a major member state in a big economy leaving the EU for the first time. Then you have the North-South divide and the East-West divide. So the North-South divide is about uh, the Eurozone and the fact that the South European economies, particularly since the Eurozone crisis, have done much, much worse than the North European countries and feel uh, the Irish, the Portuguese, the Greeks, there's been a lack of solidarity from the North. First in the Eurozone crisis, then in the refugee crisis, because most of the refugees came to southern Europe across the Mediterranean, and now in the COVID-19 crisis. The East-West divide is about the erosion of democracy, particularly in Hungary and Poland. Whereas 10 years ago, all the member states of the EU were clearly democracies, including Hungary and Poland, imperfect democracies, but you know who isn't? Now, I would argue that with the emergency powers that Viktor Orban has abrogated to himself in Hungary, Hungary, for the period of the emergency powers, is a dictatorship. It's certainly not a liberal democracy. And in Poland, the, the, you know, the rule of law, coach and horses, is being driven through the rule of law and the independence of the courts. So you have these big fractures, particularly north, south, and west, east, and the Brexit one. And the question is, out of the COVID crisis, do we actually wake up and start doing something about it? Or does it simply aggravate those fractures? So here's the good future. The good future is one in which actually 
the EU27 and Britain negotiate a sensible free trade deal because they recognize we're all going to have a recession, if not a depression, and none of us can afford another economic blow, in which you have north-south economic solidarity in the Eurozone, which is beginning to happen. I mean, the Merkel-Macron initiative, the European Recovery Fund, there's already about 500 billion euros on offer as loans to the harder hit EU countries. If you add on something in the order of another half billion, that's a trillion in the European Recovery Fund, that's a trillion plus what the European Central Bank is doing. That's not peanuts. So there's a hope that people at the end of the day in Italy could say, well, you know, actually, when it came to it, we had some solidarity from Northern Europe. The one that I think is equally important is what are we going to do about someone like Viktor Orban, who is demolishing democracy and at the same time pocketing billions of EU taxpayers' money? I mean, these are one of the biggest recipients of EU structural funds. If the EU also gets serious about that, then I think historians in five years' time could actually turn around and say, well, you know, the cunning of history, as happened before in the history of European integration, this huge unprecedented COVID crisis actually turned into a moment of opportunity for the EU. It is absolutely not a certainty. But you're optimistic cautiously optimistic. I'm more optimistic than I was when I wrote that article a couple of weeks ago because Angela Merkel has significantly shifted her position. And that is just huge. She has in principle broken two German taboos. Number one, European recovery fund money will be in grants, not just in loans. Number two, it will be mutualized debt in effect. It will be EU borrowing, right? And these were two huge German taboos. And I kept on saying for years now, I've been saying to German friends, look, Germany is probably the biggest single beneficiary from European Monetary Union, right? Its economy does it spectacularly well. Imagine if Germany just had the Deutschmarkster. Its valuation would be through the roof. All those German cars would be just much more expensive for people outside Germany to buy. So the economy would not have done half as well. Now you've got to do something to make it work. If you're in the same boat, then you've got to have some solidarity. But overall, I think there's just as big a chance, to be honest with you, that it exacerbates the division. I mean, the Brexit thing is not going well at all from either side, right? The Johnson government at the moment looks as if quite cynically, its tactic is to take Britain out as promised at the end of the year of the transition arrangement, whatever it costs, coup que coup, because no one will be able to say that was a negative economic effect of Brexit because it will be rolled up with the negative economic effects of COVID. So they'll always be able to say, well, that was COVID, not Brexit, right? So that's not looking good, and nor is the West East one looking good, because at the moment, frankly, as we say in England, Hungary has got away with murder, not literally speaking, but metaphorically speaking. That's to say it's eroded democracy while a full member of the EU. And Europe, the rest of the EU, has done sweet FA, sweet Fanny Adams to prevent it. I just want to go on to free speech now. First, could you just briefly explain to us the fundamental importance of free speech? 
you know, part of what we're living through, not just in Europe, but across the world, is this global anti-liberal counter-revolution. So the absolute foundations of liberal, free, open societies are being challenged by China, by Russia, by Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, by Viktor Orban, by Donald Trump to some extent. And free speech is not just like any other freedom. It is a freedom on which all the other freedoms depend. It is the oxygen of freedom, because only when you have free speech can you work out what is true and what is false. Can you work out what the actual scientific answer is if you have free debate? Can you have real democracy? Because democracy requires an informed citizenry who know what's going on and can freely debate the alternatives, right? So all our other freedoms, and by the way, coexistence, living with diversity is also much helped by free speech because we get to understand each other. We get to understand where other people are coming from. So it's an absolutely fundamental freedom. I spent much of the last 10 years working on this big book about free speech, available on all good Amazons, <laughs> and a website called freespeechdebate.com, which we built up out of Oxford. And there's a double challenge. The challenge is to work out what the rules of the game are at home, in our own countries, right? When we have people from everywhere living in the same place, right? Multicultural societies. But also online, and we're talking, you know, in effect online, everyone is connected. The subtitle of my book is 10 Principles for a Connected World. So what we say here, you sitting in Dublin, me in Oxford, will be heard by someone sitting in Rio de Janeiro or Beijing or Moscow as easily as by someone just down the road, and it will be heard as easily next week or in a year's time or two years' time. So what the internet has done has been to telescope both time and space. So whereas in the past the question about free speech was one of time and place, is it okay to say that thing in that time and in that place? Maybe it's not okay in a dorm at a university, but it is okay, you know, in a rowdy public meeting or on the street. The internet telescopes all of that. And so we have to work out what are the rules of the game in a connected world. The Charity Hebdo office in Paris became a target of Islamic extremism in 2015 after they released a number of satirical cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. After the Charity Hebdo shooting, publishers around the world were unwilling to publish Charity Hebdo cartoons, and you said the assassin's veto should not be allowed to prevail, and you called upon newspapers and broadcasters across Europe to take part in a coordinated publication of selected Charity Hebdo cartoons. Could you talk about the importance of the Western world standing together against infringements and attacks of free speech in the West and what the best ways of going about this are? Great question. So there's a term in the sort of American free speech debate, which is the, the heckler's veto, which is when someone heckles at a meeting so loudly, or lots of people do, that they, the speaker can't go on. And so people who want to hear the speaker can't actually hear him. And what I said on this occasion is now we have a much more brutal and extreme version of that, which is the assassin's veto. If you say that, we will kill you, which, of course, also goes back to 1989, by the way, because 1989 was also the year of the fatwa on Salman Rushdie, 
it's amazing what, everything that happened in 1989. You had the Volga revolutions in Eastern Europe, you had the fatwa on Salman Rushdie, you had Tiananmen Square in China, and you had Tim Berners-Lee inventing the World Wide Web. Four absolutely huge developments in one year. So that's the assassin's veto, and it keeps happening from Islamist terrorists, but not only from Islamist terrorists. So to give you another example, this is important to say, I write in the book about a very brave Italian journalist and writer who is under police guard 24-7 because he wrote about the mafia. And the effect of that is what is called a chilling effect. It's not just the immediate effect that those guys at Charlie Hebdo were killed. It's that everybody else is frightened to go into this territory to say something possibly offensive or even humorous about Islam. So it has a much wider chilling effect. And the danger is in a multicultural society that if nobody says anything that may offend anybody, you'll end up with precious little that we can talk about, let alone joke about, right? Because if you put together all the taboos of all the faiths and belief systems in the world, there isn't much left. So what I argued in that case was to face down the assassin's veto, it needs solidarity. I would not normally, you know, I've worked, I'd worked, written for years for The Guardian. I wouldn't normally have wanted The Guardian to publish those cartoons. They were extremely, I mean, hair-raising. I mean, they are very offensive, just as a matter of taste. I, I wouldn't myself have seen those published in The Guardian. I mean, Charlie Hebdo is a really out-there satirical magazine. But when the people who drew them and published them have been assassinated in proof of the act of publication, then the only way to respond is for everybody to republish them, saying, guys, this is what you get. If you try to shut us up, then suddenly the whole world will have seen these cartoons. If they hadn't gone out to murder those cartoonists, it would have been 20,000 people who'd read a small French satirical magazine. So I think, you know, I think it's one of the big challenges of our time is this assassin's veto. When Theresa May wanted to ban all nonviolent extremists from having free speech on campus, you advise her against this. If this were done, you said there would have been no Gandhi, Karl Marx, or even Martin Luther King allowed to speak on any campus. Rather, you propose that the best way to combat extremism is to bring it out in the open to expose the hollowness and hypocrisy of its argument. Could you expand on this, and particularly in relation to Islamic extremist ideals, how this can be exposed when you're dealing with faith-based reasoning as opposed to fact-based logical reasoning? So first of all, this was specifically about universities. And as part of the anti-terrorist legislation, what happened is that people in the Home Office, who actually, I think, came, I have been told, came from sort of the intelligence agencies and the police, drafted these guidelines to the regulation, which were already putting a huge burden on universities. Universities were meant to check out every speaker, even at a student meeting. And these guidelines said this would apply to non-violent extremism. Now, I have to tell you, many of the greatest thinkers in history have been non-violent extremists. I mean, you mentioned Gandhi, but I'll give you another, Jesus Christ. Non-violent extremist, if ever there was one, that would keep him off campus. So this is seriously worrying, you know, in British universities. Just to be clear, I actually think there should be safe spaces on 
university campuses, because I think there should be all sorts of different spaces on university campuses. So if you have a woman's society or an LGBT society or whatever it is, they should be free to have their own smaller safe space. But it's really important that there are also spaces where people at the university hear really challenging and provocative and different views, point number one, so that they can confront them, and point number two, so they can challenge these people, okay? So I'll give you an example. Marine Le Pen, hateful leader of the French National Front, something close to a neo-fascist. There was a lot of people who said the Oxford Union should not have hosted her at a meeting. In fact, what happened? was she came with half the French media in tow, and they took her apart. They just asked killer question after killer question, and it was extremely damaging to her because they, she couldn't answer those questions satisfactorily. So it's actually, you know, the old saying, sunlight is the best disinfectant. That was a great example of that. Where's the limit? The limit for me comes, and, and actually we have a free speech statement for the whole of Oxford University, which I co-wrote, which says this, that the hard limit, which you should never cross, is speech that is illegal. Incitement to violence is illegal under not just British law, but the laws of most democracy. So if it came to direct incitement to violence, that would be illegal speech, and you should send them off to the police. But short of that, much better to confront them no other limitations of free speech that you see fit other than incitement to violence? No, of course there are limitations. I mean, but let's distinguish between, this is a really important point, because when people talk about limits to free speech, they tend to think about limits imposed by the state, by law. I say in the book that there are actually two crucial questions about free speech. The first is, how free should speech be? But the second is, how should free speech be? That is to say, within the very generous limits which the state should allow us in a free country. Restricting speech for reasons of privacy, to some extent national security, copyright, incitement to violence, I mean, libel, there are a bunch of perfectly legitimate reasons, okay, but that still leaves a huge area of deeply offensive speech. Then it should be our own grown-up decision how, in what context, we speak to each other. And if I don't like Charlie Hebdo, I don't have to buy it or go on their website. If I don't like The Spectator, I don't have to buy it. If I don't like The New Statesman, I don't have to buy it. So free society has multiple different spaces, and you make your own. And actually, you know, that's what you're doing as we speak. You're making your own space, virtual space, in which we have a certain kind of conversation. You're advising that governments need to start working with Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all the big tech giants, and seeing how they control free speech, because now it's more so them that have control over what is acceptable and what is not. So how do you propose this, and how do you propose going forward governments work more closely with them to protect this freedom? So I don't know if you ever heard the acronym POPS, P-O-P-S, which is Privately Owned Public Sphere. And what we have now in Facebook is a privately owned public sphere for two and a half billion people. There's never been anything like that in world history, right? It's a place where two and a half billion people essentially can meet and it's privately owned. And, and in theory, they could say, 
we can't have any pictures of red people with red hair. So there'd be no red-haired people on Facebook, right? And here you have two equal and opposite problems, okay, or dangers. One danger is it's a completely wild free-for-all. And so on Facebook, you can find really nasty and dangerous stuff, which our kids are suddenly confronted with. In a direct incitement of violence, really hard pornography and so on. We don't want that. The other danger is that we say, oh, so our governments have all got to regulate. And China and Russia and Turkey all say, thank you very much. That's exactly what we want to do. And it closes this fantastic window that Facebook has opened up for people living in unfree countries and dictatorships. Okay, so you've got to avoid both those problems. So I think government regulation should actually be quite minimal. It should involve the law, as I was talking about, right? So that the law is respected on Facebook as it is in the New Statesman or online. But what I've been working on, particularly with Facebook, is a very strong form of self-regulation. So they now have an oversight board and an appeals procedure. So they have community guidelines, quite clear, explicit editorial standards. If you don't like those standards and something of yours was taken down, you appeal to Facebook. If your appeal is not successful, you can ultimately go to this independent oversight board, which has people from all over the world. Alan Rusted, the former editor of The Guardian, all sorts of interesting people. A colleague of mine at Stanford, people from, from, from all over. Um, and if they say, Facebook, you've got to put that back up, Facebook has to put it back up. So it's a, it's a really difficult problem, but between, as it were, the scylla of total anarchy and the charybdis of letting the governments call all the shots, this is a sort of middle way, which is kind of strong self-regulation. Do you see the internet being a liberating medium for ensuring the sort of maintenance of free speech in the future? And in a discussion with Salman Rushdie, you're in, you referred to a joke made by the Ayatollah of Iran when he referred to somebody in Iran who was assigned the job of taking down, censoring websites in Iran. And every time one was taken down, three more would pop up. And the Ayatollah said, it's like removing a ladder to stop birds from sitting on the roof. So do you see the internet in that way, always protecting freedom of speech and freedom of expression, even in Arab states, even in China, even Russia? Unfortunately not. That's what we thought at the beginning of the internet 25, 30 years ago. The internet will set you free. And do you remember with the Arab Spring, they were Twitter revolutions, they were Facebook revolutions and all that stuff, the Green Revolution in Iran. Then we started discovering the repressive potential of the internet, which is at its most visible in China. In Xinjiang, you have an Orwellian surveillance system based around uh, using the internet, using facial recognition technology to pin down where every single Uyghur is going and persecute them if need be. So like all technologies, the internet is double-edged. All technologies are double-edged. Take a knife, a very simple technology. You can use a knife to cut your meat and bread, or you can use a knife to murder your neighbor. So it has the positive and the negative potential. 
And it's exactly the same with the internet. It's just that the, the potential is squillions of times larger in both directions. So the challenge for us is to maximize the liberating potential of the internet and minimize, we won't eliminate, the repressive potential of the internet. And that's why one has to think really carefully every time you propose a step. I'll give you one quick example. You know, people say quite rightly, anonymity is a big problem in online forums. And it's true. Much of the most abusive and threatening stuff is anonymous. I talked to, I mentioned, tell in, in the book, the story of a Canadian liberal feminist Muslim woman called Irshad Manti. And she said to me, I've never forgotten, she looked at me and she said, you know, the person who is threatening me with death, anonymous is threatening me with death. But on the other hand, for dissidents in China or Russia or Iran, anonymity is what's keeping them out of prison, keeping them out of the torture chamber. So in each of these cases, you have to find a way which you know, maximizes the liberating potential, keeps the positive side of anonymity while restricting the, the negative effect. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, tell your friends about it and maybe give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.